Hey everybody and welcome to another fantastic episode of Pottywood, the show where we talk about movies with the people that make movies. I am one of your co-hosts, Steve the Hester, and with me as always is... That would be me, Andrew Roger Carson. There is seriously not enough coffee for today, but we are at Pottywood, episode 11, Rise to Double Digits. I know, God, I honestly didn't even think we'd make it this far. And I've said that before, but just feels like we're, we're doing so well. I'm amazed we've gotten this far, to be honest. I know. God, all those weeks ago when we were wide-eyed innocents that had no idea of what a stressful thing this whole endeavour would be. You should try getting into Hollywood. Yes. Well, I've been uh, digging up flagstones today. So, yeah, that was fun. That's practically the same thing. Okay, so we had a bit of a change-up in our lineup this week. Uh, due to circumstances, we were supposed to have Elizabeth J. Carlyle with us. Fortunately, in her case, she is one of the hardest working actresses and is constantly working at the moment and still wants to come onto the show. We've just not been able to align that up. So we said, no problem. We will push her episode back a couple of weeks and we will find someone equally or even more impressive. And I believe we have done that. We have brought a very special person onto our show today, a really good friend of mine who we will introduce in a little while mm-hmm. but first we need to talk about what's in the box from last week steve yes and the what's in the box was the 2008 darren aronofsky is that how you pronounce it aronofsky yeah aronofsky yep mickey rourke film the wrestler yes i am gonna come and just say this right out of the gate i really enjoyed this movie uh, as usual, I watched these films the night before we record an episode, and I watched it last night with my girlfriend. She didn't enjoy it because she thought it was a bit long and it was a bit slow. Me, personally, I thought it was a brilliant film. It's got a very documentary feel, and it tells the story of Randy the Ram Robinson, played by Mickey Rourke, who is an aging professional wrestler, and his body's falling apart, but he's still trying to put on shows in tiny little town halls and civic centres all throughout the local area where he lives. He's supposed to be Philadelphia. And then early on in the movie, he gets a massive heart attack and gets told that he has to stop wrestling. And it's at that point that he starts to reevaluate his life and the people that he is near to, or more importantly, not near to in the case of his daughter, and ultimately weigh that up against how he feels about leaving his life's passion behind. It is a really well-acted movie. I thought Mickey Rourke in particular, I thought he would stand out. Because his performance is so realistic, it's so grounded, there is nothing in this which ever feels over the top, and like I said a few minutes ago, it feels like a documentary, it feels like you're following in the footsteps of a genuine professional wrestler in their twilight years. Exactly, and this goes beyond acting for Mickey Rourke, Mm -hmm. this is a full-on transformation into a character. Without question, I could easily buy Mickey Rourke as a professional wrestler. Watching him in the ring, in the segments, there's a particularly brutal hardcore match about uh, about a quarter of the way in. And I don't know how much of that was staged and how much of that was actually realistic. But uh, considering that in the opening match of the film, he literally, and I do mean literally, takes a razor blade and cuts his own head open in dedication to the role. He put himself through hell for this, and it shows up on screen. Every single thing that he went through to try and bring this character to life, he nails it. 
that's even before you look at the the supporting cast as well with the uh, Rachel Evan. Is it Rachel Evan Wood? Evan Rachel Wood. Is Evan it, Rachel Wood. Is it Evan Rachel Wood or Rachel Evan Wood? I don't know. Because I th- I can't remember which rain round it goes. Um, Are there two of them? I don't know. I think it is Rachel Evan Wood. But then I think when I went on to AMDB afterwards, it was Evan Rachel Wood. So I don't know. It could be two of them. Uh, but and then of course, Marissa, Marissa Tomei. Marissa Tomei, who would, let's face facts, she would give Peter Parker some very strange dreams <laughs> after her performance <laughs> as a stripper. And I did think it was rather nice because you had... Mickey Rourke's character is in the twilight of his profession, and no one really wants to see him. His body's letting it down because yeah. he's getting older. And then you've got a similar kind of story with her character, Cassidy. Yes, where, the parallel. Yeah. yeah, she's starting to get towards middle age. She's finding herself less and less desirable by the customers. And uh, it's a nice little mirror between the two stories. But before we go any further, I will say this. It's full of actual professional wrestlers, including our very own Lloyd Anawahi. Hey, shout out to Lloyd. Yep, who's there in one of the opening segments. And there's also a lot of it that's improvised. Yes, and you didn't know that Lloyd actually trained Mickey Rourke for this movie. Mm -hmm. I did know that because you mentioned that at the end of last week's episode. I did, but people weren't around for it, so... No, they weren't. chuck it in there bit of a segue but the good thing about this is you don't need to be a wrestling fan to enjoy this movie no not at all okay it is a story about a guy who who needs this occupation much more than the occupation needs him Mm. all right it's almost like a drug to him it is you know it it spoke to me you know because i watched it as well you know i i put so much time and effort into my career in this business and and seeing this character who dedicates his life to it, you know, and he's got no wife, his family's kind of falling apart, his, his daughter doesn't know who he is. And this character's missed opportunities come from his real life stuff, not from his career stuff. No, it comes to a big head in particular. And this is spoiler territory, if you didn't realise that already. Uh, when he tries to reconnect with his daughter, yeah, this is after years and years of just general neglect in terms of their relationship together. And then after eventually getting within reaching distance of getting the two of them back together, he blows it yet again. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is also, I've got to put on a side note, as someone who has tried to make a wrestling movie and still is, uh, this is the first movie. You're making a wrestling movie, Andy. Uh, Well, at one point I was. (laughs) The jury's still out on whether I'm still making it. But uh, it only takes one person bringing a script back to you with certain changes to make you think, Jesus, maybe this isn't a good idea. Well, this was the first movie to really portray this entertainment world of wrestling with respect. You know, it wasn't Mm -hmm. ready to rumble. It wasn't body slam. It wasn't all the marbles. This was a character study. Yeah, it was so realistic that apparently even Ric Flair, the nature boy himself, cried at the premiere of this movie. The direction of it, I think, you know, it's very simplistic uh, and that's in style and narrative as well. Mm -hmm. But my God, does it really add to the sense of loneliness that this character has and the ridicule that this character faces in his everyday life from almost everyone. And it pushes you solidly behind this character where you really just want to see him have that last shining moment. Which he does kind of get at the end of the movie with uh, where he has, to, he has to have a rematch with one of his old enemies, the Ayatollah. But what I do like about this movie is the fact that it doesn't try and show up 
professional wrestling as being real, but it also doesn't shy away from the fakery of it either. Oh, did you say fakery? I Lloyd did. is going to absolutely no, 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 no. Let, let me be absolutely clear on this. I think I think wrestling is both fake and real. You okay. mean the scripted nature, not yes. fake? Yes, because one thing, you have a definite outcome. You know X person is going to win. You know that the two people, or more people, however many it's going to be, in the ring are talking with each other. You know that they are actively working with each other as opposed to against each other. It is not an actual competitive sport. But at the same time, you cannot deny the physicality, the ability, and the genuine athleticism that is needed to pull this off. Nobody can just step into a ring and do it. You need to be trained. You need to work. And you need to put in the time and effort to be able to do that. And so I think that I think that massive props needs to go to, to, Mickey, to Mickey Rook in, in being able to pull that off. And the movie doesn't shy away from all the background stuff that goes on. And you regularly see him interacting with his opponent and that they're discussing how things are going to go. Do you mind if I do this? Do you mind if I do that? And then they get into the ring and then they're butting heads. Yeah, it's it's pretty fun actually seeing that from a director's standpoint as well. Hmm. Where it's just like meeting up with your line producer and your first AD. <laughs> and your DP mm. in the morning, like strutting out exactly how the scene is going to go. And that kind of spoke to me. And the other kind of scene that really did uh, impress me was this really small throwaway thing that many people may have missed. And it is when he's working in, I believe it's the deli in the yes. supermarket. And he's going up towards like the, the plastic curtains to go out and you're hearing all of the cheers and everything. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he walks through it, it's just silence. Yeah, and I thought that was so clever. Yeah, again, it's mirroring what happened earlier when he was going. I think he was going out for his first or second match, and yeah. it was a similar thing. He was walking back through backstage, and then he gets to the curtains, and his music plays, and the crowd goes nuts. Only this time, like you say, silence. Yeah, so. I will also say in a, in a final piece on this, this movie was only the third American film in history to win the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival. Mm-hmm. Bit of trivia there for you. Yeah. For your award buffs. And uh, before I finish up on this, at one point Mickey Rourke is seen playing on an old Nintendo and it's kind of like an old version of the WWF as it was there, WrestleMania games. But Mickey Rourke also, round about the same time that this movie came out, voiced a guy called Dick Marchenko who was a genuine soldier in the game Rogue Warrior. So there you go. Oh, you just, you had to get a gaming thing in there, didn't you? I did. Look, you know movies, I know gaming, Okay. So, yeah. Well, props and celebration for that. And speaking of celebrations, we've got a couple of anniversaries this week. We watch them again all of the time, or we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. Did you slow that down? No. That sounded. A lot slower this week. <laughs> I never touched that, I promise you. Oh, okay. All right. I'll, I'll trust you on that. But anyway, we have a couple of interesting anniversaries this week. Okay, shoot from the hip, Andy. That's always been your style. <laughs> well, can you believe, Steve? I don't know, Andy. That 25 years ago this week, mm-hmm. the first Mission Impossible was released. Oh, y- yay. Yay. And did you also mm. know... It's been 25 years since the seventh 
Mission Impossible started production. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if that is actually still in production. I don't even know if they're working on that right now. Uh, they've been shut down again, apparently. Um, uh, I haven't read into the news on it, but yeah, it's it's been shut down yet again. Mm. Uh, feel so bad for the people who are working on it, unless they're getting paid a shitload of money to just sit around and wait. In that case, cool beans, I guess. Well, I don't know about that, but I think it's been shot in the UK. And if that's the case, then with British crew, you probably can get a few of them that are claiming some of the government assistance for COVID. Apparently, from what I was hearing, apparently the blame is being put on um, Tom Cruise for this recent one. I'm not sure how accurate that is. There's apparently a rumour that he went half a mile up the road and dislocated Harrison Ford's shoulder. (laughs) Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's terrible. But two films that are being shot practically right next door to each other. That's uh, that's, that's pretty impressive. And speaking of archaeologists, Steve... 20 years ago, Lara Croft Tomb Raider was released. Uh, now you see, I think that's kind of like a bit of a guilty pleasure, that one. Oh, I, th- I thought you were really? seriously going to destroy this movie. No. Being the gaming nerd that you are. Oh, don't get me wrong, from a gaming standpoint, it's dreadful. But it's it's one of those movies that if it's on, you'll probably watch it, but you're not going to go out of your way to search for it. I I wasn't offended by it, and to be honest, Angelina Jolie is still the best Lara Croft that we've had in a movie. I haven't seen the new one with Alicia Vikander, but I do know that that is more or less based on the plot from the 2013 reboot of the game, so I've pretty much already seen it. Ah, fair enough. Yeah, I I don't mind Lara Croft Tomb Raider. It filled an hour and a half of my time. I kind of liked it. But can you believe, Steve? Hit me, Andy. 15 years ago, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End was released. Oh my god, now that does seem a lot longer than it actually is. We've had And that's just the film. Yeah, we've had two more Pirates of the Caribbean movies since then. Yeah, and no one's re- paid any real attention to either of them. No, and and to be honest, this is probably the one I've seen the least, which is surprising because Chow Yun-Fat's in it, and normally I will watch anything he's in countless times. Yes, because I know that you're a big fan of the replacement killers. Yes, uh, I, I am a very big fan, and people can't understand why. Jay Oliva can't understand why. He's like, why the hell do you like that movie? And that was Chow Yun-Fat coming to American cinema. That was the world being opened up to Chow Yun-Fat, so it was a, a major celebration, and the soundtrack was awesome as well. Now, what's next, Andy? Oh, that was it. That was our anniversaries for this week, can you believe? There was only three. Only three? Only three. Oh, you wait till next week. Oh, I'm guessing there's going to be a lot there. Well, we will have to see. I think it's time that we uh, let our guest in the room. So, as I said earlier, we had a clash in terms of availability for our original guest for this week, Elizabeth J. Carlyle. She will be on again. We delayed her appearance because she'll have so much to discuss when she becomes available. So, we were very lucky to shuffle our schedule around and be able to bring someone in ahead, uh, someone truly special. He's been a good friend of mine for many years, and he's been a better friend to the industry for over 40. So, Mark Marshall started his career in the year I was born. Sorry, Mark, just to make you feel old. <laughs> now, he, he got his start working at Lucasfilm in 1978, working on such films as uh, The Empire Strikes Back, you may have heard of it, and Raiders of the Lost Ark, which could fill up an entire show by itself. Oh, dear Lord, yes. In 1984, he moved to Amblin Entertainment, 
uh, working alongside uh, Steven Spielberg on such projects as Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, uh, Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, Last Crusade, as well as the Amazing Stories TV show, which is still one of my favorite things from my youth. He's also from past there. He spent a lot of time, especially as a producer, on the Free Willy franchise over at Warner Brothers. Uh, he's also one of the hosts of the Executives in Exile podcast, along with Bill Daly. And he's currently a native of Oklahoma, and that's where he's joining us today. Mark, how are you doing, buddy? Oh, I'm sorry, guys. I just got a notification on my phone that uh, from KFC that it's National Fried Chicken Day. Yay! Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Well, Sorry we're not that. sponsored. Well, I just got excited. Uh, I'm, I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you guys? We're doing absolutely splendiferously. Considering the weather is absolutely atrocious. Oh, it really is. It's been horrible. We have had torrential rain like you would not believe. We had that last week. You did. When I spoke to you last week, apparently the rain was coming down sideways. Yeah, I'm really sorry about that, too. I, the connection was really bad, and I was only getting every other word, and and I got distracted because the rain was literally coming in sideways and the wind was blowing. And we have a tree out front that uh, is that about is about half gone. I mean, literally half on one side. So, you know, I was looking with a little bit of concern at it. But um, it's a beautiful day today and it's going to be in the 90s and uh, with 150 percent humidity. So uh, typical Oklahoma summer day. Well, at least there's no tornadoes. No, we've had a bad year for tornadoes. I think the the whole uh, tornado alley has shifted southeast down into Mississippi and Alabama. Well, they can have it. So (laughs) while we were talking about uh, wind in the 90s, we've actually got to go all the way back to the 70s. So there is no way, Mark, that we can cover your entire career experience and knowledge of this business in one podcast. And to be able to survive for over 40 years over so many big-time productions and the relationships forged in it, I always find it incredible to hear about this knowledge, the stories you have that could be lost to time otherwise. Andrew, Andrew, give me five minutes. I'll tell you everything I know. (laughs) (laughs) We need to pad this out. Come on. Give us more than that. Yeah. Make some shit up. It's fine. So we have to naturally start with where you started, and I believe you started back at Lucasfilm. You came on right after the release of Star Wars. I guess you call it Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope now. And uh, I guess you kind of started working between that and more American graffiti. Is that right? Well, yeah, the, but I got to go back even further because my first job wasn't at Lucasfilm. It was at a place called CPC Associates in Hollywood. It was a visual effects house that had been doing commercials and, and low-budget features for several years. It was started by a guy named Ron Seawright, who happened to be the optical guy for the Laurel Hardy shorts. And wow. uh, when Ron died, his son, Roy, inherited the um, business. And I happened to meet up with some of the crew at CPC during a, a symposium with Industrial Light Magic one Saturday. And just got to talking and and they actually hired me for one day as a PA and then just kept me on for several months. But uh, we did the Mrs. Butterworth commercials and the Pillsbury Doughboy commercials with the hard plasticine models, you know, where you had to put the the lip movements and the, and the arms and stuff on. So that was an education. 
And it was while I was working there that I got a call from Howard Kazanjian, who was producing more American Graffiti and had a job opening, which I had bugged him for almost a year. As my friend George says, there's a fine line between persistence and stalking. And I <laughs> just tried to be persistent. But um, uh, I had met Howard actually at a USC summer school program with Universal Studios and made his acquaintance and asked him questions. And, and he was just very kind to me and very responsive. And so for a year, every week I would call him and say, do you have any openings on the film? And he finally said, uh, yeah, I have an opening as a film runner. So I left CPC and, and went to Lucasfilm and I think it was August of 78. So that was my first feature job, but my first real job in the industry was a CPC. That's pretty astonishing. I didn't even know that. And I always tend to learn these things about you. It's very weird now that I was a, a guest on your show. Oh, I've been a guest on your podcast twice, uh, Executives in Exile. So being able to kind of turn this spotlight around on you now is probably the biggest guilty pleasure I'm ever going to have. <laughs> and, and very uncomfortable, I might add. <laughs> oh, don't worry. You're with a friend. <laughs> yes, and Andrew. <laughs> well, well, I'll tell you a little, uh, a little thing, too, here, a um, little side. When I was at CPC, the editor there was a, a guy named Ted Eckleberry, and Ted had this big editing room, and there was an elderly gentleman that sat on his couch every day and finally, after about, oh, two weeks, I finally got the courage to say, who is this gentleman? I've, I've never seen him before. And, and um, they were astonished that I didn't know who it was. And, I, and they said, well, there's a book on him, uh, about him, down at Larry Edmonds Bookstore in Hollywood. Why don't you go get it? So I dutifully went down and found the book, and I felt like an idiot. It was Tex Avery. Oh, um, what? Yeah, I know. And, and – uh, so I bought two books, one for myself, one for my brother, and went back and said, do you think Tex would autograph this? And they said, he'll give you a hard time, but he'll do it. So at the end of the day, I went up and said, Tex, you know, would you mind signing these? And oh, yeah, I'll, put up, I'll, I'll get to them later. Came in the next morning, and, and there were two books, both with pictures that he had drawn of Bugs Bunny. And his said, uh, uh, what's up, Mark? To my good friend, Mark, Tex Avery. And I had a chance to get to know Tex before I left for Lucasfilm. And when I would go back to visit the guys at CPC, he was still there. He, he called me Big Daddy. Hey, Big Daddy. Anyway, he, I was so sad when he passed away in 1980. But, um, you know, someone, a friend said, you know, you're the Forrest Gump of the film industry. Um, <laughs> I, don't think, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think he meant I was stupid. It was just I was, I was there kind of in the right place to meet some of these uh, legends. And, you know, I never, uh, I, I still think of Tex a lot. Oh, God. I was massively jealous of the fact that you worked on one of my favorite movies, Empire. And now I learned that you're working with one of the greats of animation. Oh, I'm even more jealous now. Well, and I didn't know, you know, I knew his work, but I didn't know who Tex was. And so that, that was a culmination of my, the two, um, figures that really impacted my childhood. I got to meet them both before they died. One was Tex Avery and the other was uh, Bob Keeshan, who was Captain Kangaroo. Um, so I could die a happy man. <laughs> well, speaking of being the, uh, the Forrest Gump of the industry, you came in right into it when cinema was changing, obviously with Star Wars. And you're right there in the hotspots surrounded by 
the new kids on the block in George Lucas and, and Steven Spielberg. You practically entered uh, motion pictures right around the time that these guys are starting to become the hottest thing in Hollywood. So how was it kind of coming into that? For me, looking back on it, at least, the 70s, I think, was probably the most exciting decade in movie history. Definitely. Now, I know everyone says the 30s, you know, and or the 40s, but the 70s was a changing the guard. And it started actually at the end of the 60s with Francis Coppola and uh, in his rise. But, you know, it felt like it was a new industry again with people like George and Steven and Bogdanovich and Friedkin and, and, you know, all those guys. So there was a real buzz, a real excitement about where we were. Now, when I took that summer course at SC, the film department at, U at University of Southern California was kind of the bastard stepchild of USC. It was in a Quonset hut with a quad uh, where everybody kind of sat and did their thing. And, they, and the soundstage was a little dilapidated garage and to look at it now, of course, and see what it has become is just indicative of what those young directors, uh, the, how they changed the industry. So coming in kind of at the end of the decade uh, in 78 was really thrilling. I mean, the, the studios were crazy busy. There was so much going on. And even though I originally wasn't on a studio lot, wasn't based there, we were across the street in a building called the Egg Company at Lucasfilm. It was still just so exciting to see everything going on. So, yeah, I feel really lucky that I got to actually be there when film was king, before digital, and kind of the new revolution um, in filmmaking. Well, Star Wars was, obviously, it was one of the biggest grossing films of all time. And the, the expectation behind Empire was to try and surpass it as much as possible. What was it like working there at that time, knowing that everything had to be dialed up and with a new director taking over? Was the energy different? Well, you know, it's interesting because the purpose of, of Lucasfilm South, I guess, in, in Los Angeles, we were kind of the hub of the publishing, merchandising, legal administration, things like that. So we, we were removed from what was happening up north. And, you know, I just remember there was a lot of activity because when George hired Charlie Weber to run Lucasfilm, suddenly all these new ancillary market things were popping up, you know, the, and merchandising was growing. And, and suddenly there were demands for personal appearances on the characters and things like that. And it was just, it was, we had a small staff too. So it was, there was a lot going on. And as a PA, of course, I was just trying to absorb all that was happening. But at the same time, it gave me an opportunity through friends and mentors like Craig Miller um, or Sid Gannis, an opportunity to try to do more. I mean, I actually started writing for the fan club newsletter and got to go to London during shooting uh, the Hoth sequences with, uh, with Craig Miller to do the cast and crew interviews. So it was really like everybody pitching in and doing something different. Well, you brought up the fact that you were working for well, kind of like the, the publicity arm of Lucasfilm. In terms of the merchandising and the publicity or anything, was there anything that you had come through that you can remember that people really leapt on and there were other things that they just said, no, we're not touching that at all? Probably maxi pads. I don't know. I, 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 uh... <laughs> for no. when the force is with you. <laughs> 
Oh god, did they instead of blue ink, did they use blue milk? <laughs> you know, I honestly don't think they saw a product they didn't like. I mean, I can understand too. I mean, they were they were approving everything. Um, I can't think of anything offhand that they rejected out of hand, but um, I think they actually even approved a Star Wars cereal at one point. And and Gloria Veerman, who was in charge of the merchandising, uh, on one side of the building was all the offices and and the atrium and everything, and on the other side was my domain and then the uh, there was a loading dock there was a, a huge warehouse area so Gloria had one area which was just you know massive shelves after shelves and had hundreds of each item stored on there and uh, so <clears throat> it was just mind-boggling you know and then of course uh, when Stephen came to do Raiders they actually divided some of that warehouse in and made production offices for Stephen so it was mind-boggling all the things and the and the novelization, the, the the picture books. I had never seen so much merchandising for one film, and of course that was new anyway because prior to Jaws, there really was very little merchandising in Hollywood, and the studios didn't think it was worth anything anyway. It's amazing to think that I probably bought most of that stuff, or at least annoyed my parents for most of that stuff when I was a kid. I can tell you also that one of the most amazing things is uh, last year we had a friend who was clearing out of his loft and actually gave the original Millennium Falcon toy to my son, Ethan, which he still plays with to this day. Wow. And, I've still got mine. Oh, <laughs> I wish I still had mine. And the at walkers as well. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And my, my kid is absolutely crazy on Star Wars. And I, I showed him a picture the other day of Mark actually stood by the real Millennium Falcon on the set of The Empire Strikes Back. And we've got to hear what that set was like. It was massive. Elstree didn't have a, a stage big enough for what George needed for Empire. So they built the Star Wars silent stage. And even with that, which was the largest stage in England at the time, uh, I think it was before the, the Bond 007 stage of Pinewood, they ended up having to lengthen the stage and, and create a forced perspective set for the opening of the, of the Hoth Cave just to be able to give that perspective. So look went on the set that, that first day, and I had never been in anything so big. And, you know, just apart from the fact that I had, you know, loved Star Wars, it, it just felt so familiar to me. And But that I, I my mind couldn't conceive how craftsmen could could create something like that. And obviously, in talking about Raiders, which followed, I think the following year, if I'm right, and this was the first kind of collaboration between Spielberg and Lucasfilm, also. And how crazy is it to think that Raiders of the Lost Ark is celebrating its 40 year anniversary mm-hmm. right now? Oh, remind me. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I you know I. Um, still remember when they started principal photography in, I think they were in France because I remember getting a telex from Frank Marshall and I don't know why he telexed me. Frank kind of took me under his wing because we had the same last name, but we weren't related. In fact, Frank's the one who got me the job with Steven as his home projectionist while he was prepping Raiders. And Frank sent me a, a, I think it was June 26th said um, we're off to France uh, say a word on Sunday for Com C's. I, I was going to church, and which I was amazed that he even connected that. But uh, it it was amazing. The first I think the first shots were the the submarine base in New Rochelle, France, and that kicked it off. And even though I left during 
production, I think toward the end of production on Raiders, no one, no one had any idea that uh, it was going to be what it turned out to be. In fact, Stephen, you know, the, the story is that Stephen almost didn't get to direct it because no studio would, would touch Raiders if Stephen was attached as director. This was following 1941, right? Yes, which mm. I think he's always been unjustly accused of. You know, they were. I think Hollywood was waiting for him to fail because he was just, you know, between Jaws and Close Encounters, they, they wanted this guy to fall. And um, I remember when Stephen first came to Lucasfilm, uh, to start working, uh, two guys came up to Stephen and said, Hey, we're going to go see 1941 tonight. And Stephen stared at him for a minute and then said, have you ever noticed how many women work in this place and walked away? I mean, he just didn't want to even want to talk about it. <laughs> wow. So, uh, yeah, he was, this was his chance to, to prove that he could make a film on budget and on schedule and creating a classic in the, in the process. Well, he certainly managed to do that and uh, also gave Harrison Ford his second iconic role. Yeah, you know, I remember the way they did the casting sessions is uh, Lucasfilm had this really neat, beautiful kitchen. Uh, with an old-fashioned stove and and, uh, and a, a big island. And instead of just having people come into his office and read, Stephen would take the actor or the actress into the kitchen, and they would make something like either cookies or bread or cake or whatever, and they would just talk. Then when they were finished baking, the all the, you know, the food would go out onto the window ledge, and and the people who worked at Lucasfilm would come up and and grab a cookie or whatever and, and stuff, which I thought that was really unique. And then when it came down to do the screen tests with Tom Selleck and I think... Um, it was I, I Sean Young think, was one of the main... Sean Young. Uh, and then, believe it or not, Melissa Sue Anderson from Little House on the Prairie, who played Mary oh. the Blind Girl, um, actually auditioned as well. But Stephen set up a 16-millimeter camera and, on dolly tracks and sat in the courtyard in the atrium and did the screen test. So uh, we were kind of all there for the entire process and and, and how unique it, it all was and how fresh it all was for us. There's a documentary which is part of the Indiana Jones box set and some of that footage is on there. Uh, but I know yes. that they were very reticent to get Harrison Ford back in for this, weren't they? Well, George was because I think George didn't want to use the same people over and over, you know, unlike Scorsese who used De Niro all the time. And I think George just wanted to use fresh faces so he was the one who was reluctant but when uh Selleck I think Selleck was actually offered the part and then had to turn it down because CBS picked up the option for Magnum PI and so he was unable to do it and here they were without a leading man and Stephen suggested uh, uh, Harrison and George finally you know agreed uh, and Harrison, I think, was a little, a little ticked off that uh, that he wasn't being considered. So he kind of stuck it to them when it came to negotiations for the salary. Obviously, at this time, you worked on, correct me if I'm wrong, all three of the first Indiana Jones films. You, you worked kind of closely with Amelin uh, throughout that time. And how crazy is it now to see that Indiana Jones is still going with Harrison Ford, with George, and with Steven still to this day? Well, my career, I kind of came and went during the Indiana Jones films. I, I left during production on Raiders. I joined Amblin during post-production on Temple of Doom, and then I left Steven during production on Last Crusade. So, so I, yeah, I got to be there for some of it. I mean, I was Steven's personal assistant, so 
you know, I got to be at the scoring sessions for Temple of Doom. And one of the projects that Stephen had me do was he had me picking up Kehoe Kwan, who was short round, um, and taking him to press interviews, things like that, because he wanted, he kind of wanted to personalize it. So I spent a lot of time with Key and his family and taking him to, to different interviews. So, I mean, listen, I was just a, kind of watching the whole process. I was learning the whole time. So I, I didn't have any responsibility for the shaping of the films or anything else. But I had a, you know, a front row seat to learn, which was really important to me. And so the Raiders film still have, uh, you know, a great deal of meaning for me. Okay, well, before we do move on, uh, you touched on Temple of Doom, which had a bit of controversy with the level of violence that was in it, along with Poltergeist. Did you notice any of the fallout from this? Because obviously this was responsible for changing the rating system in the US. (laughs) The only thing I witnessed was one of the, the person who really kind of blew up the whole controversy was a film critic named Gary Franklin who was, uh, I think, hired by the local CBS affiliate in Los Angeles to uh, as their film critic. And Gary Franklin was a kind of a pompous ass, to be frank, and loved to stick it to people. He loved to give films bad ratings, you know, no matter how good they were. And I remember Stephen and George were at the, Chi- the Grumman's Chinese Theater to have their hand and footprints, you know, immortalized in cement. And there was a big crowd and press conference and they started taking questions. And Gary Franklin piped up and said, uh, Stephen, uh, who should see Temple of Doom? And Stephen, without missing a beat, said, everybody but Gary Franklin. And, <laughs> and which got a big laugh and, and kind of humiliated Gary Franklin. But he's the one who really kind of pushed for the PG-13. I don't know personally that it was necessary. I think when you go into a movie, you kind of just innately know that this is movie violence. This is, you know, it can be very effective. I understand that, but I, I don't see a lot of difference today between, you know, PG or PG 13, to be honest, but it did create quite a bit of controversy at the time. And I think it died down actually very quickly after the MPAA decided to go ahead and issue the new, uh, the new rating. Regarding obviously your then shift to Amblin. And I think you kind of answered this kind of question for me, but I've got to bring it up. So obviously, uh, this came about following your uh, guy named Joe incident. Oh, ah, <laughs> uh, you thought I'd forgotten you know, about that. <laughs> you know, Stevens can hear about this one of these days. Uh, Hopefully, in that case, we might be able to convince him to come on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You might. Um, so you want me to tell it? Go, go ahead. Tell the story. Uh, it's, okay. It's well, so, like I said, Frank Marshall was responsible for me getting the job running films for Stephen at home at night. And um, Stephen had just had a, a, a public breakup with Amy Irving and was kind of in an emotional state. And his favorite movie was a guy named Joe, which was an MGM movie with Spencer Tracy and Irene Dunn. Uh, and Stephen remade it years later as always. But if you, if you've seen the movie, you know how, you know, it's an emotional movie and, and also, my first night running films for Stephen was a brand new print that MGM had made for Stephen of a guy named Joe. So I threaded the film up. Now, when Frank said, do you know how to run a projector, 35 projector? I said, of course. I, you know, I've been around him all my life. Well, I actually had been for a year when I was working at a theater in my hometown, but I'd never run one. 
So I threaded up the, it was a, you know, double system. So I threaded up both projectors and um, lowered the lights and started the film. And there was a terrible noise. And so I stopped the film and said, Stephen, I got a little problem. I'll, let me just take care of it. He was cool with it. And I looked down and I had split the first 50 feet oh. of a guy named Joe right down the center. Um, so I snipped the film, rethreaded it, started it up. And this time it was fine. Rewound the film, put it in the can and never told him. Oh, we- so how much was missing off the beginning, though? Was it just the, uh, it was the, the, the countdown? Or? Yeah, main titles. <laughs> well, I, I yeah. think that was crackerjack thinking by yourself, oh. Mark. It, it's hard to believe that within 10 years, people will not know how to do that anymore. You know, I think I pulled over. After I left Stephen's house, I pulled over somewhere and collapsed. Um, <laughs> thinking, thinking my career is done. I, I had I had a lot of those things during my time at Lucasfilm where I thought, my career is over just because of things that happened. Uh, when, when George decided to let Stephen or let uh, 20th Century Fox distribute Empire, I was sent to Fox with a letter to um, the chairman of the board, Dennis Stanfill. And I was told to give it directly to, to Mr. Stanfill. And I said, no problem. So I get to Fox, I find the building, I go in and I am sweating and so nervous, I went to the bathroom and gained my composure and then went to his office. And the outer office was dark. There were no assistants there. And so I said hello and heard this voice inside the inner office saying yes. And it was uh, Dennis Stanfield. So I opened his door and it was it was like the, the hallway to the Wizard of Oz, you know, walking down that, <laughs> walking across that room. It was huge. Like a, you could land a plane in it. And um, I, I got up to the desk and, and said, I have a letter from George Lucas for you, sir. And he looked me up and down and said, thank you. I said, oh, you're welcome. And I walked out of his office and into the hallway. And I thought, well, now what was he looking at? And I looked down and not only was oh, my no. fly open, but my shirt tail was pulled out. <laughs> and I thought, there's no point, there's no point in, in even going back. I, I'll just keep driving. Uh, and maybe I'll end up in Oregon somewhere. <laughs> but fortunately, Mr. Stanfield never never reported me. So maybe it happened to him once. You never know. <laughs> maybe you, you just fully got it. <laughs> Thanks for telling us those stories. They're just absolutely gold. But you know, you were there at Amblin during Stephen's real shift into mature filmmaking. Obviously, with um, the color purple, which is. An amazing movie that is not certified fresh, but is sitting at It isn't. No, but it should be. And, of course, Empire of the Sun as well, which is certified fresh. So, as I understand it, I mean, you were there. I have seen uh, some of the pictures you have taken and been there during those productions. What was that like being in that major shift in probably the most famous filmmaker on the planet at that time? Well, the second year that I was at Amblin uh, was the year that Amblin put out five films. It was The Goonies, Color Purple, Money Pit, Young Sherlock Holmes, even though I think Money Pit didn't come out till 86, and Back to the Future. And, and we had a staff of 28 people, so it was amazingly busy. And Amblin was getting a lot of notice, you know, and we left for uh, North Carolina to shoot Color Purple around the time Goonies came out and, and before Back to the Future. And, 
and all. Yeah, I, you know, it was it was interesting because Stephen, I think himself was unsure that he was the right director, and actually told Quincy Jones that he said, you know, he said I'm I'm white. <laughs> You know, I think he was just stating the obvious. I'm white, and and who am I to tell you know a, a black story? And Quincy said, "Well, you didn't have to be from Mars to direct ET, did you?" And <laughs> and, and that kind of it's convinced Stephen. Yeah, it, absolutely. But I'll tell you, it was such an amazing summer, and that'll probably be the pivotal summer for me. Was the summer of '85 because coming off of being with Stephen while he was directing Second Unit on Goonies, to directing two amazing stories episodes. And then right into Color Purple, it was amazing to me that this man could do so many things at once and still creatively ride herd on the other projects that Alan was producing and ones that were in the works as well. So, yeah, I mean, I'm I, uh, still amazed. Now, I, I didn't end up going to uh, Shanghai or to Spain on Empire of the Sun. I ended up holding down the fort. But you know, because I think Kathy and Frank didn't feel like it was, you know, they didn't want to spend the money to have me go along and have to house me and feed me. So um, that's why I think I cherish the color purple experience even more. And I do have <clears throat> a lot of pictures. It was amazing that, that we were allowed to, even though we had a great unit photographer on both Goonies and color purple, a guy named Jack Shannon, he didn't mind us taking pictures. And excuse me, a lot of us did. Uh, uh, the, the cast crew, everyone took pictures because they wanted to remember the experience. Well, you've listed some incredible movies just in this short session, but a lot of those have basically summed up the lives of every kid that grew up in the 1980s. How does it feel to have that kind of legacy on your CV? Old. Makes me feel old. Um <laughs> Well, that's why I'm thankful for people like Stephen and George and Dick Donner, who passed away yesterday. These are the movies I would have grown up on had I been a kid in the 80s or, or whatever. And I, I guess what I learned in the film business is that when you work on a film, first of all, you hope it makes money because you put so much of your heart and soul into it. The, all, the entire crew, the cast, everyone gives so much of themselves to make a movie that you you hope that people respond to it and the and the obvious response is box office. So you hope that it makes money. Secondly, you hope that maybe it's remembered for a few years uh, and even talked about in, you know, around the water cooler. But I guess the ultimate compliment is that it becomes something else over the years with time. And that's what Goonies became. I mean, when Goonies came out in 85, it made, I think, $67 million. It did not make a lot of money. And it was off the screens in a few weeks. Back to the Future is the film that everyone talked about that summer and made $300 million, you know, at the box office. Um, in fact, I had a bet with the PA on um, Back to the Future, Steve Talmy. I said, Goonies is going to make $300 million and Back to the Future is going to be forgotten. And uh, <clears throat> it was just the opposite. But over the years, both films, of course, have, have grown in cult status. But Goonies has been so taken to heart by generations of moviegoers. Kids who saw it in the 80s uh, and who are fathers, you know, now are introducing it to their kids. It's uh, yes. And, and that is incredibly gratifying. I hear from Goonies fans all the time and they're lovely people and uh, they tell me what it meant to them. And, and I'll tell you, it gets emotional because you just don't expect stuff like that to, to happen. So I'm really grateful that I got to be a part of that. 
No, definitely. And, and there is an entire focus that we, we do want to do on the Goonies with you on another episode. You mentioned, obviously, with that summer, working on amazing stories. This is like the cult series of the 80s. I mean, it only ran for two seasons, but it introduced so many big name stars at the time. And obviously, uh, Stephen directed two episodes in The Ghost Train. And my personal favorite episode was The Mission. That had right. Kevin Costner, uh, Kiefer Sutherland, uh, Casey Samisco. It was just a, an absolutely phenomenal... Which episode was that? It's set around the crew of a, a World War II bomber. <gasps> oh, yes! And yes, I know the, that the one. And the gunner yes. gets stuck in the turret underneath. Yeah. And Mark was there, obviously, when that episode was being filmed. Was that being filmed at Universal? It was. In fact, it was It was shot on stage 28, which was the Phantom of the Opera stage. Yeah. Um, you know, half the stage was uh, still contained the set from the original silent film, of Phantom of the Opera. And Universal never tore it down, although it was never really a part of the tour. I think they just were nostalgic and kept it standing. But the other half of the stage was empty, so the... Um, plane was was there but you know it was fogged in so you never really saw the edges of the stage but of course all i remember of that uh, experience at the time was trying to deal with uh, with kevin costner's agent who insisted that kevin wanted to keep the bomber jacket and stephen refused and she was incessant in bothering me to try to harangue me to get it and and uh, so when i see the episode that's the first thing i think of <laughs> Was the uh, the second thing you ever think of? Is it always the tour that was coming by? Oh, oh gosh. Um, <laughs> so as I said, Stephen used a lot of chemical smoke you know, to fog in the stage. Um, the The first day of shooting, Stephen decided that he was going to do the opening seven minutes of the film in one shot. So we did a couple of rehearsals and and the camera crew got it down and everybody hit their marks. And so we did a couple of takes. And by then it was it was kind of late morning everyone was starting to kind of feel the effects because that chemical smoke would, would, it was oil based yeah, and it would start coating your lungs and making it difficult to breathe. So uh, Stephen called a break and they opened the sound stage doors. Well, stage 28 was right next door to a part of the tour where the trams would come in, people would get off and they would go into these, these two little stages they had set up as a, a special effects demonstration. So they had, uh, they had the ET ride uh, you know, you get on the ET for the blue screen and, and people could see the background being projected, you know. So it was a real busy part of the of the lot. And Stephen decided to take a break and he walked out and he actually kind of leaned against one of the stages and just closed his eyes and pointed his face up toward the sun. <clears throat> I was off to the side. I, I, I knew when Stephen was thinking or, or didn't want to be bothered. And so I would just kind of stand by in case he needed something. And um, a tram was getting ready to leave. And suddenly this lady kind of almost did a double take and, and looked over and got off the tram, which you're not supposed to do, and ran towards Stephen. And she got up to Stephen and she raised her camera, but didn't take a photo. Well, Stephen saw her and, and so he very politely smiled. And she still didn't take the picture. And finally she got exasperated and she said, excuse me, would you please move? And Stephen said, sure. And he, pulled, he stepped to one side. The lady took a picture of what he was leaning against, which was an E.T. poster. <laughs> and, and then ran and got back on the tram, and the tram took off. Oh, my God. And Stephen 
looked over at me and then he shrugged his shoulders and I shrugged my shoulders and we went back to work. <laughs> oh, I bet she is kicking herself. I don't think she ever knew. No. Uh, so. Those are the kind of instances that really just live forever, especially mm. in, in that kind of career, working on those kind of projects. And obviously, you know, you, you carried on there. You, you ended up working a lot at Warner Brothers, obviously, with our good friend and occasional guest, Bill Daly. Yes. So <laughs> I believe you know him. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you got to a point where you actually became a producer on the Free Willy franchise, you know, which is a very beloved set of movies, especially the first. And, you know, that's how we kind of got to know each other when we initially got talking. I mean, that's, that's quite an achievement, working through the business for that long to finally land in these, these family-friendly movies. Yes, and I, I got I to gotta say, first of all, I love Bill Daly. Bill is a great friend and was my boss at Warner Brothers later on uh, when you I was poor guy. Uh, supervising post-production. <laughs> oh, no, listen, Bill and I <laughs> had the greatest time. Bill was a blast. He was He's one of the smartest men in the business. He is. Um, has a head for figures, but he also knows this business backwards and forwards. But before uh, Bill was the senior VP of post-production, he actually was our post-production accountant on Free Willy. And that's where I met Bill. But I got to say that it's the generosity of Dick Donner. When, when I left Stephen, it was a tough decision to leave him. But, uh, you know, I wanted to get into production so badly. And I knew that if I stayed with Stephen, the chances are that I would have just stayed an assistant for the rest of my life. So, I left Amblin, and Dick hired me um, originally as a, his production representative on Tales from the Crypt. Dick was one of the five executive producers, and because he was directing Lethal Weapon 2 at the time, Dick needed someone to kind of look out for his interests, and he hired me. More is the pity for him to, to, to place that faith in me, but anyway, <laughs> uh, I worked on Tales for a couple of years, and and then during hiatuses, I switched over to Donner Schuler Donner Productions and was Jenny Liu's assistant on Radio Flyer and Lethal Weapon 3. And then when Dick promoted uh, Jenny to full producer on Free Willy, Jenny made me her associate producer, uh, which I repeated on Willy 2, and then and she bumped me up to co-producer on Willy 3. And that, that was a precious time. I mean, all three of those films getting to work with, you know, directors like Simon Winsor and and Dwight Little and Sam Pillsbury and especially working so closely in post-production uh, because that was, I was kind of given that dominion. And I, that's when I really developed a love for post-production and for the crews that work so hard. Uh, they're the unsung heroes. I mean, editors, music editors, sound editors, um, ADR, Foley, scoring, all of that whole process was something that I just fell in love with. So I had the best of both worlds, getting to be there from pre-production through production, but then also supervising post-production, which kind of gave me another career. But the Free Willy films will always be special. We, you know, Jason Richter was his first film he ever did. Getting to work with the late, great Augie Schellenberg, Michael Madsen, Jane Atkinson, Lori Petty, Michael Ironside, um, I had some great times talking to Michael. Richard Reilly, um, who is one of the greatest character actors ever. There are just so many stories I know we don't have time to go into. But, um, yeah, it was it was a 
a, a blessing to be able to do those films. Well, Free Willy films, they, they are loved by many, but there was still a little bit of controversy with regards to The Killer Whale itself, uh, because you know, you've got a movie which is about freeing the whale from captivity, and yet the actual whale itself stayed in captivity for some time afterwards. Yes. Was there anything, was there any kind of fallout from that that you remember particularly? Oh, definitely. Um, well, first of all, Free Willy was so well received and it, uh, you know a lot of kids wanted to go into marine biology after that and, and they they fell in love with Keiko I and mean, we all did but the reality was that Reno Aventura in Mexico City where we shot you know those sequences owned Keiko and even though he was in poor condition there was nothing that Warner Brothers could really do about it at the time however when Free Willy was a hit and Warner's decided to go forward with Free Willy 2 when the announcement came out, the hate letters started coming in. Uh, we actually had one, uh, looked like a little girl, I mean, with the handwriting, who wrote to Terry Simmel, uh, one of the co-chairmen of Warner Brothers, and said, if you don't get Keiko out of Mexico City, I'm going to kick your ass. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we had one lady addressed uh, a letter <clears throat> to Mr. Cruelty, that is what kind of lit a fire under Warner Brothers to do something. Now, now Dick and Laura Schuler Donner and Jenny Lou Tugan were trying to work behind the scenes to make something happen long before Warner Brothers ever, you know, did anything. But um, when Warner Brothers lent their, you know, name and their money, things started happening, and it became a cause celeb. I mean, getting Keiko, literally saving his life because he would have been dead a year or two down the road. Um, and getting him, you know, rehabilitating him in the Pacific Northwest and then releasing him into the wild in Norway where his pod was, was huge. But despite that, you know, the, the feeling was, well, hey, we spent $20 million on Free Willy. If we spend twice as much on Free Willy 2, we'll make twice as much. Well, we, <laughs> we actually kind of made half as much. Um, <laughs> so that's why Free Willy 3 was made in Canada and... Uh, we flew under the radar, just like we did with the first film. In fact, Warner Brothers executives referred to us as that whale movie. And our dailies were always put on the executive schedule at the end. And most people didn't stay for them anyway. So, yeah, there are a lot of stories about Free Willy and, and the positive response to that and, and suddenly becoming a thing, you know, cultural thing. But, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, we uh, if Warners had just gone ahead and left Keiko in, in Mexico and he had died, it would have been a nightmare. Well, at least it's a happy ending there. Yeah, I mean, you know, even though Keiko died, he got to be free, literally free. It, it, it turns out that Keiko loved people, number one. And so his pod was right there, and he tried to rejoin them, but he kept coming back to the pen to be with people. Um, I think he just was used to that. Um, I know <laughs> I'll tell a little story here that uh, I don't know if I should tell this, but um, Walt Conti, who built the animatronic whales in the miniature orcas for the films, uh, had to get in and measure Keiko. Uh, so I had to get in his tank uh, at Reno Aventura in Mexico City. And Keiko got excited. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yes. and, and Walt was unsure whether he should measure that. <laughs> To be to, so he could be correct in, in all measurements, uh, but yeah, Keiko took quite a liking to Walt. Yeah, I think that model <laughs> probably showed up in the rated R version. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> free Willy and name, I, free Willy and nature. Well, I, I know free Willy means something different to you guys. Over, yes. Uh, in England. <laughs> okay, so Mark, one of your big loves is obviously working post-production and, and you can have a, a good extensive work, especially leading up to Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone or the Sorcerer's Stone, if you're American, celebrating 20 years this year. We are going to do a special on that. And uh, I know Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's slash Philosopher's Stone is something that you hold very dear to your heart. First of all, it was my only my second time in England. I was working on a HBO project called 61 Asterisk that uh, Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal. Worked. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we were in the last two weeks of post-production we were supposed to deliver and i was all ready to deliver i had you know i had it scheduled out and everything and i got a call from bill daly and bill said hey i've got a project i can't tell you what it is do you want to do it and i said i'd love to but he would not tell me what the project was so i went to billy and said billy look i'm gonna be able to finish out about a week of this but warner brothers has called and he said uh he said it's a great opportunity you got to do it so they hired HBO hired another post supervisor to finish up the last week, except Billy wouldn't let the film go. It, it didn't premiere until April, so he, he still had three months. This was January of, uh, of 2001. So I left, and of course Billy hated the other guy and made life miserable for him and wouldn't let the film go. And Anyway, but it was a wonderful film, and, and working with Billy was a dream. Finally, Bill said, okay, look, I'll tell you what it is. I can't let you read the script yet, but I suggest you read the book. So he told me what it was, and I found the book and, and really enjoyed it. I, but I thought the post was going to be done in L.A. And when he said, oh, by the way, you're going to be spending 10 months in, in England, um, I had literally five days to drive back to Oklahoma, pack my bags, and be on a plane to England. Uh, so I was really caught up in this whirlwind and got to England and, and met the, you know, the editor, Richard Francis Bruce. And I already knew Chris because Chris had an office at Amblin back in 84. Um, he had just finished, uh, he had finished Gremlins and, and he wrote Goonies at Amblin uh, on this little bitty word processor with a little square screen with green letters. Uh, and it was uh, something new for all of us. Anyway, so I, I knew Chris and got to meet Mark Radcliffe and, and I'll tell you, it, it was. It was one of the most unique and enjoyable experiences I've ever had. Now, you know, every film that I've worked on, with few exceptions, are memorable in one way or the other. And, are, and I mean, Goonies will always be dear to my heart. Um, Color Purple will be Free Willy, of course. But Harry Potter it was something new altogether for me. The British crew were fantastic. I've, uh, we just had such a wonderful time together. And being on location, you know, there were five of us Americans who were on the film. So we tended to congregate and have dinners together and things like that. But, yeah, I'll tell you, I, I, uh, I don't even know where to begin with Harry Potter except to say that, that it was a, a very defining moment for me and probably one of the high points. Also, the good news is with it celebrating 20 years this year, we are going to be doing a special episode on it like we did with our Green Lantern episode with Bill Daly. So we're gonna, naturally going to have to bring you and Bill in for that episode Oh yeah, to discuss this landmark movie. Yeah, it was it was daunting because, number one, it was Warner Brothers' hottest potential franchise there was such pressure to please Joe Rowling, the author, and it was, you know, one of the biggest productions that the Warner Brothers had done. Because of the piracy issues and things, 
we had so many meetings with Warner Brothers heads of departments about security uh, and how we were going to handle this. I mean, I listen, I had done post schedules in my sleep, but this was even bigger because we had actually two different versions. There were there was Harry Potter, the Philosopher's Stone and Harry Potter, the Sorcerer's Stone. And in and and so the kids had to say in one version, Sorcerer's Stone, another version, Philosopher's Stone, which affected two reels, which isn't a big deal. But when you multiply that by 14,000 prints and you have, and, you know, when you're doing subtitled and dub versions, keeping that all straight, all the while visual effects are coming in at the last minute. Um, it created some hairy situations, but um, we did it. I, I think that if you ask Chris, he's probably not pleased with all the all of the visual effects, but but we just ran out of time. We really risked our release date if we weren't able to get all the effects, you know, cut into the negative. So it is what it is, but I think it came out pretty darn well. And man, look at, look at what the franchise has yielded. Definitely, it's very true. The last time that me and you were together. Uh, obviously, I was the guest on your Executives in Exile podcast at Universal Studios just last yes. year. <laughs> Boy, doesn't it feel much longer than that. Oh, it does. And obviously, we're along with uh, your co-host, Bill Daly, and uh, another guest of ours, Becca Marks, was there as well. Yes. Uh, and she's appeared on our show also over the last couple of months. In the opener. In the opener. Very first guest. Now, obviously, you, you've kind of moved back to Oklahoma during the pandemic to be closer to home. And uh, obviously, the the movie scene there in Oklahoma, it's seeing this uh, emergence over the course of the last year, especially now with Scorsese in town uh, shooting his yeah. next big movie. So how is the scene at this moment? Yeah, and Oklahoma is, has a growing film industry. In fact, just in the last six months, we've had a major soundstage complex open in, in Oklahoma City. There are sound stages now in Tulsa. Um, you know, and we, we for years, we've been kind of the independent capital. Fanke Jansen made her directorial debut in Oklahoma. Bill Macy, William H. Macy, made his directorial debut here. Paul Dano actually directed a film called Wildlife in my hometown two years ago. Uh, Terrence Malick shot here. John Wells shot August Osage County here. Um, and Martin Scorsese is over. Uh, about an hour away in Pahuska shooting Killers of the Flower Moon, which is a $200 million Apple production. So it, we just kind of signaled that, hey, we're open. We're following the rules that was set, were set by SAG. But I, maybe it's the wind that comes sweeping down the plains. Who knows? Hey! Um, <laughs> yeah, it seems to, seems to kind of blow away all the, the ill stuff. But um, we're, and we're getting more and more productions going. And, so it's exciting. There's actually more happening here than there is in L.A. right now. And I don't mean to sound cynical, but I just don't think L.A. is ever going to recover fully um, uh, because the incentives in other states, you know, like Georgia and Louisiana uh, can and Canada are too competitive and California is too rigid. So uh, while there definitely will be production going on, there's, there's really nothing going on at Universal right now. And this is this is a year and a half after the shutdown first happened. So um, I just feel like it's more a more exciting time to be here uh, than out there, and there are more opportunities. And, of course, I may be joining you shortly as well. I'm, I'm hoping so. I'll tell you, I, I know you're going to have a fantastic experience here, Andrew. Um, 
And I can't wait to introduce you to the people here and, and uh, to, you'll want to make every movie here. Oh, that's right. Go off and leave me. See if I care. <laughs> My mother warned me about men like you. <laughs> I'll check in once a week. Oh, know. good. You can have me as a guest on. <laughs> <laughs> I'll host it with Neil. It'll be fine. But Mark, Mark um, you know, there is so much more of your career uh, to cover, and we've only covered kind of a half of it, and we do want to have you back in have a talk again about this other mm -hmm. half of your career and i want to say now you once classed me on executives in exile uh just last year as the most persevering writer director in this business but in comparison to yourself my 10 years really has been nothing you've experienced <laughs> all the highs and lows in this business and you still dedicate your life to it you know and, and this is kind of the real difference between those who truly love this business and those who are just in it to make the money and move on to other things. And I've got to say, without you, Mark, I probably wouldn't have a lot. And I've got to thank you for that kind of trust and, you know, that friendship that you've put into me and really helped to guide me. So, oh, and I know, you know that you've you... kind of passed it down from your experience of the people who have been there for you. And I think that's the most honorable thing that you really have in this business. I think the best thing, that, well, I appreciate that, but I think the best thing we can do in this business is to pay it forward. I had people in, uh, you know, in the start of my career who gave me either great advice or opportunities. Um, we owe that to the next generation. And, uh, you know, I see that you're the kind of guy who also knows the fine line between persistence and stalking. Um, <laughs> and you have the talent to back it up. And, so I see nothing but great things for you in this business. And, you know, even though I'm in my 60s now and, and probably my best years of my career are behind me, I still get excited every day because I see that there are possibilities. One good idea can change everything. And the fact that uh, the unions in L.A. now consider places like Netflix and, and uh, uh, Hulu and Amazon and, and Apple – as studios, not streaming services, shows that there is so much more, you know, there, there's an insatiable need for good ideas and talent. And you have both. So uh, I just, I, I'm excited to see your career continue to develop. And, uh, you know, I'll be your biggest cheerleader. <laughs> and, and you'll be there, obviously, showing me all of these amazing locations that you've seen over the years. Well, I hope so. I mean, I'm, I'm practicing right now by saying, right away, Mr. Carson. <laughs> I'll just be no. in the pub. Yeah. <laughs> You'll no, be in the pub. Good. Like I say, you've had 40-plus years in this business. But what we really want to know is if you can nominate five. Now's the time to nominate five. Nominate five. Yes, nominate five. But three, or four, or six, or nine... This is wow. where the madness begins. <laughs> Who do we thank for that? <laughs> we we thank our good composer Neil Pretty. Yes, who's done all of the music for this show and has and, come through time and time again. Yes, and we'll continue to So, nominate five, Steve. What is Nominate 5 about? Well, basically, we like to challenge each of our guests to nominate five of something. 
it varies depending on who we have on, but it's usually their top five movies, the top five movies that feature certain aspects, the top five scenes, the top five musical cues in the case of our aforementioned and very, very esteemed colleague, Neil Pretty. So what do we have for this week from Mark? Well, for Mark, I have asked him this week, because he has such a rich history over the case of these uh, last four decades, and it would be a crime not to ask him what five films he loves the most. So top five recommendations for people to go and find. They may have seen them, they may not have seen them. And we will count down five to one because this countdown rarely goes right. It's never gone right. It's never gone right. No. So just throw them in any order, but we'll do it as a number. So, Mark, are you ready? I keep thinking of the line, uh, Danny Glover's line from Lethal Weapon. I'm getting too old for this shit. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. I'm ready. You're ready. Okay, so let's start with number five. What have you got for us, Mark? Okay, this is... Believe me, narrowing down a list is not easy because there are so many. But my number five is a movie from 1986 starring Tom Conti called Saving Grace, who plays a young um, uh, cardinal who is who becomes pope and laments the fact that he has lost touch with his people. And one day, while gardening in the Vatican garden, this piece of paper he has with him blows over the Vatican wall and he goes to get it, inadvertently locking himself out. And instead of going back around to get in, he wanders off into the countryside and has an adventure where he meets up with a situation that desperately needs his help. Um, it's a it's such a sweet movie. It has stayed with me all these years. You can't find it anywhere. Um, I don't think even on eBay, but I have a digitized copy, and I'll tell you, I I, uh, I watch it every once in a while because it has such a sweet spirit about it and such a hopefulness as well that there really is, you know, there are good people in this world. So that's that's my number five. Okay, wow. then. So what is going to be your number four? Well, speaking of grace, my number four is uh, Amazing Grace from 2006 with Ian Griffith. Um, as uh, William Wilberforce, who, as you know, I'm sure, was uh, in Parliament in 1797 and worked tirelessly to abolish the British slave trade. It yes. was actually the transatlantic slave mm-hmm. trade. I'll tell you, I, it was, it, I, I love history, number one. Number two, I love hearing stories that I've never heard before and, and I was not aware. The, the reason it's called Amazing Grace is because he goes to seek the counsel of a former slave trade captain, uh, ship captain named John Newton, who is now blind and recounts his conversion. Um, and he was the author of the, of the songs, Amazing Grace. Oh, right. Wow. Yeah. This is two films I have not seen yet that I've already got to check oh. out. I, I knew that getting Mark, we would get like some titles that we've probably never heard of. That's how extensive his knowledge is. I'm just very no, pleased that you're finding films that you've never heard of or not seen instead of me. It's <laughs> rare. It's very rare. Oh, it's, listen, there's not enough time. I mean, there are some <laughs> wonderful gems out there that, um, you know, that I'm sure I'll never see. Oh, it's very true. You can't see them all. So what's number three? Number three is a film that I love. It was Paramount Pictures, 1977, 
a movie called Islands in the Stream with George C. Scott, who plays a sculptor and kind of hermit uh, in the British-controlled Bahamas uh, during World War II. Um, and he has a series of events that happen. His sons come to visit him. His two ex-wives come to visit him. And it's just it's just a simple story of a man who's kind of reckoning with his past and then uh, decides to take a stand when he returns to the U.S. in helping some refugees. And it died quickly because it came out right after Star Wars came out. Um, I think it came out in July, actually. And it played for a week in my hometown and with two people, I think, in the audience the entire run. But the the most notable uh, thing for me is the most amazing and beautiful score by Jerry Goldsmith, which was one of his favorite scores. Um, But Islands in the Stream. And it's uh, Claire Bloom, David Hemmings, Gilbert Rowland, um, Hart Bachner, just it's it's an amazingly beautiful lyrical um, movie. But did one of those two people in the audience have a Macintosh on their lap? Oh, there you go, Steve. There's yes. a throwback to episode one. <laughs> Brilliant. Going all the way back to episode one. Oh, good I God. <laughs> okay. uh, right, so what is going to be your number two? Number two was an independent film that came out in 1998 called Smoke Signals. Brilliant! Um, I have seen. Yes, this. number one. It's you know, it's the theme is universal. It's not just uh, confined to Native Americans, but it's about uh, two young men on an Indian reservation in the Pacific Northwest, who you know are struggling. Um, and one of the of the young men's father, who abandoned him when he was a child, has died in Arizona, and he and his friend go to get the body to bring it back to the reservation. It's just full of revelations. It's about the relationship between fathers and sons. And um, the ending is a killer. It really is. I just, yeah. Still gets me every time. No, I, I will reinforce that. That is, is such a strong choice. And uh, it, it's a film that a lot of people have even never heard of or forgotten about. But it, it's one that definitely deserves to be seen. And Sherman Alexie's dialogue is so beautiful. And so, <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you, it's just, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Thomas builds the fire and, and, uh, and Victor, the two young men who were amazing, Tantu Cardinals in it. Um, this is a, a, a gem that, that needs to be rediscovered. So I, I heartily recommend it to everyone. Wow. So, I mean, <laughs> Uh, I'm almost scared to ask because this is, if I haven't seen what your number one choice is, I'm going to be so embarrassed. So what is your number one choice, Mark? Well, first, can I do an honorable mention? Okay, we'll let you. Okay, thank you. My honorable mention would be a film from 2012, South Korean film called, uh, I can't even pronounce the actual name, but the American title was Masquerade. Um Ki-Huy Kwan, uh, who again played short round in, in Temple of Doom and Data and Goonies, introduced me to this film. And uh, it stars Bang Han Lee as a commoner who looks like the king. Uh, this is back in the, in the, in the uh, early dynasty and ends up portraying the king because the, the real king is poisoned. His love for his country and his realization that the politics make no sense causes him to change his country and it's just it's 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 a it's a poor description but it is 
such a wonderfully, I mean, nobody makes films like the South Koreans. And this one is just so special. I recommend it highly. Well, I've not seen that one either. So this is this is not going well for me. <laughs> no, it isn't. Now you I've know how it feels, Andy. <laughs> I know, I've been put right in the spotlight on this one. So go on then, Mark. What is the number one? Okay, my number one film is a film I've loved since I saw it as a kid. Uh, I watch it as often as I can. It's uh, Preston Sturgis film, Sullivan's Travels. Brilliant. Yes, I've seen this. You know, uh, it's a story. Joel McRae portrays a famous Hollywood director of comedies who is at the top of his game, but has decided that because of the depression and everything else, he needs to make a serious film. So uh, against the advice of all his handlers, he becomes a hobo and sets out across the country to really you know, find out what the issues are and, and to make so he can make his epic film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And finds along the way during the Depression that what people really want to do is laugh. Sorry, it's uh, it's just such a meaningful movie for me. No, I can imagine. I mean, it, it is an incredible movie, uh, one that doesn't get mentioned half as much as it should do. Well, the, the famous line for me was. When John Sullivan, the director, says, you know, there's a lot to be said for making people laugh. Did you know that that's all some people have? It isn't much, but it's better than nothing in this cockeyed caravan. Mm, that's a no. good line. It's, it's a great line. Yeah, um, it's one for the ages. It really is. Uh, and, and that is such a good choice. That might be actually one of the best choices we've had on our countdown. And I guarantee you there should be a, a lot of people who need to go and see this movie. You know, they need to hunt it down and find it because it really is just a phenomenal piece of work from an era of movies that it's rapidly getting forgotten about you know yeah and and precious Sturgis was an amazing director of social commentary um he had such an ear for dialogue and keeps it moving and if 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 for no other reason watch it for veronica lake (laughs) oh yes (laughs) and then discover the rest of it you know um, but yeah, it's it's a classic. Well, you know what? Uh, it's, it's a hard nominate five to beat this week. Mm. Uh, this is definitely going to be the one where I think pretty much all, maybe all six of these nominate fives <laughs> can, uh, including the honourable mention. It's all right. Bill added two on last week. I know. Or the other week. Um, I'm going to have to just redo it. So I just put a little electronic Stephen Hawking kind of voice. Now's the time to nominate six. <laughs> But now, um, the one one thing I also do want to mention, I give an honourable uh, little mention here, is people need to find a documentary film that Mark was heavily involved with called uh, "Remember the Sultana." Yes, please. And if if you don't know about this, uh, well, we've got the man here who can tell us all about it. Mark, tell us about "Remember the Sultana." The Sultana was a steamboat that uh, plied the Mississippi waters between St. Louis and New Orleans during the Civil War. And at the end of the war, the Sultana was tasked with bringing the Union POWs home to Camp Chase, Ohio, to be mustered out from Vicksburg, Mississippi. But because of greed and overcrowding, the boat exploded on April 27, 1865, at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and 
killed hundreds of soldiers, emaciated dying soldiers, as well as passengers. It's the worst maritime disaster in U.S. history, but no one knows about it. They all remember the, the uh, Titanic, but the Sultana had greater loss of life on a boat one-fifth the size. And, and this documentary that came out, uh, Mark, you were producer on it, and I know that you did a lot of editing on it as well. Well, my brother and I co-produced and co-directed it. My friend Brendan Hedges wrote it, and uh, a wonderful, wonderful editor named Dave Edison did the fine cut. I did the assembly because I had kind of I knew where the rhythms were, but but Dave made it so much better, and um, we got picked up by Amazon Prime. Uh, where we are now, and uh, it, we had an amazing crew. Uh, Sean Aston is one of my executive producers. Jim Michaels, uh, a dear friend who I've known for 35 years uh, and was most recently executive producer on uh, Supernatural, the series, was a co-producer. I was an executive producer. Sean narrates it, and then we have some incredible uh, voice talents like um, Jim Cummins, who was the voice of Winnie the Pooh and Tigger, uh, Bob Bergen, who's the voice of Porky Pig, believe it or not. Uh, uh, Glenn Morshauer uh, from 24. Thomas Ian Nicholas, Jason Richter. Um, just an amazing group of actors doing the voiceovers of the soldiers. So if you like documentaries, honestly, you have got to go and see this documentary. It is absolutely fascinating. And, you know, it's it's, historic, it's history that you should know about. Uh, I was, yeah, I was really amazed that, that Fewer than 2% of the people know about it, including history professors, don't even know about it. So, um, and if you, if, you, if you do get it from Amazon Prime, rent it or buy it, and you like it, please leave a review. We, we appreciate it. We will. And, you know, when you get a review, you just go there, you type in your nice words in the box. Don't you, Steve? Yeah. And you also ask, what's in the box? 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 I don't know what. There you go, Ethan. You just weren't quite there. Just no, weren't quite there. I was trying to stay. It just, it just so yeah, just had to jump in the last well, second. Uh, I thought it was revenge for absolutely nailing. That Bill Daly, what's in the box? Oh yes, you did, you swine! It is the the best segue I think we ever had on this show when he said he was waiting on an Amazon delivery. Yeah, <laughs> and you Should leapt I, in I be there. No, no, not at all. I'm the one that has to be frightened in this segment. And why is that, Steve? What is what's in the box? Well, I have, shall we say, a rather Shit. narrow-minded. <laughs> I'm going to stick with narrow-minded uh, yeah. view of movies. I tend to watch very populous ones, car chases, explosions, all the rest of it, and Andy is trying to broaden my movie horizon. So, he has a box full of movie titles, which are all certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, and he's going to pick one out in a minute. If I have seen it, that gets put to one side, and then we keep picking out new film titles until we find one that I haven't seen, and then I have to watch that the night before our next show and review it. So, just like we did with The Wrestler last week, what do we have for me next week? Okay, well, while you were giving the explanation there, I reached into the box and I have actually pulled a good one. And it's a very light-hearted movie, actually, with kind of a tragic story behind it. 
and it is 2007's movie Waitress that was directed by Adrian Shelley. And Adrian Shelley, uh, she was a phenomenal talent, a phenomenally okay. talented actress. This was her directorial debut. Unfortunately, she was murdered before this movie premiered. Oh, and, wow. And it was a really sad end to a, a really fantastic directorial debut. But you've got Kerry Russell, uh, you've got Jeremy Sisto, you've got Nathan Fillion, and Adrienne Shelley is in it herself as one of the characters. And it truly is a wonderful movie. Andy Griffith is also in the movie. I believe it was his last ever film role. And I know the cinematographer of this movie very well, and I know he's incredibly proud of this movie, so you will enjoy it. Well, uh, as you probably guessed, I haven't seen this, but by this time next week, I will. Yeah, I didn't even ask if you had seen it. I knew you hadn't. That's how I know this game. Although I will (laughs) say this, though, uh, just hearing the name Nathan Fillion, yeah, yeah, all behind it already. (laughs) Sorry, I'm a brown coat. What can I say? Have you seen Waitress? Uh, Mark? No, I haven't, but now I will. Yeah, well, okay, no. you can join the discussion next week. You can watch it yourself, and then uh, I know that you two are probably friends on Facebook, and you can help join the conversation on there. Just as much as you can join it on Twitter at uh, Bodywood, or you can join us on the subreddit of r slash Bodywood. Yes. There you go. Get the Thanks plugs in. Yes, get, the, get those plugs in. Uh, Mark, I always yes. love talking with you, mate. It, it's so it's always great, and I'm I'm so happy to kind of pay it forward and have you as a guest on my show because I've been on yours four times now. <laughs> well, Andrew, thank you. It's always a pleasure as well, and and uh, Steve, it was a pleasure meeting you. And you, uh, you've got some really really good stories. So I am hoping hoping that you'll come back on in the future, and then we can delve into your career some more. Well, I'd love to, and I I look forward to the day when we can talk about Dick Donner without me breaking down, um, because he was an amazing guy. He, he, tr- he truly was. and uh, You know, he's left a massive imprint on this business and we will cover that when, you know, a bit more time has passed. Yeah, yeah so, thank you. For now, I have been Andrew Roger Carson, as always. And I have been sitting on my bed this whole time. <laughs> well, anyway, I-, I think we've entertained people for long enough, Steve, so I think we need to say ciao. Ciao. <laughs> Shout out to Mandy Vermeer and the Nerd Herd. I got it in.